This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We're excited to bring you a special episode from our 2019 Sports Medicine Symposium. Today you'll be hearing, Exercise is Medicine, But Are We Taking It? From the co-director of Sports Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Ed Laskowski. Be sure to follow him on Twitter, at Dr. Ed Sports Med. Dr. Laskowski is co-director of Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine and a professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Nationally and internationally recognized for his expertise in fitness and musculoskeletal and sports medicine, Dr. Laskowski studies and promotes best practices for general fitness, injury prevention, and injury rehabilitation, strength training, and stability training. He has served on the President's Council on Physical Fitness and Sports under both President Bush and President Obama. His lecture topic this morning is important for all of us. Uh, I think no matter what our specialty is, he's going to be talking about exercise as medicine, but are we taking it? So go ahead, Ed. Thanks so much, Jake. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Well, hopefully we'll have some fun this morning. Um, exercise is indeed medicine, but uh, we'll talk about some of the things that we're finding now about uh, are we really taking it and are we really benefiting from this incredible, incredible uh, asset we could have. The, the person on the slide, anybody know who that is? He is the inventor of the modern ski jacket, Klaus Obermeier. So really, any ski jacket you have is based on his original designs. He basically uh, developed the first down ski jacket, quilted comforter and all. He's 99 years old in that picture, skiing down Aspen Mountain. So definitely uh, something to strive for. So no disclosures for me. Going to have some fun talking about activity. What if I told you there was a drug that reduced breast cancer onset and recurrence by half, that lowered the risk of colon cancer by two-thirds, that reduced the risk of Alzheimer's by almost a half, that reduced heart disease and high blood pressure by almost a half, that lowered the risk of stroke by a third, lowered the risk of type 2 diabetes by almost two-thirds, and that treated depression as effectively as Prozac or cognitive and behavioral therapy. Who would buy that drug? I would buy that. It would be the best-selling drug in, in the history of the world, right? There is. Those are all voluminous, evidence-based statements of the benefits of physical activity. Every one of those. Tons and tons and tons of research behind those. Not a new idea. Hippocrates knew this. Must also take exercise, but few of us, few of the world is taking this medication. About 70% of Americans are overweight, obese, and have sedentary lifestyle. And that's both adults and our kids. Incidence of obesity has tripled in our, in our kid population. 70% of kids are not getting the activity they need. And World Health Organization data now shows us that there's more overfed than underfed in the world today. Not that there aren't problems with underfed, but there's more overfed. This is the United States from the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance Study. This is 2018 data. Uh, states with uh, percent of B and BMI, again, is an imperfect tool, but it's a pretty good screening tool. And if you may remember, BMI of 25 to 29 is overweight. BMI over 30 is considered obese. 
So the darker colors are percents of states that that's the rate of obesity, and the darker colors are up to 35%. So some of our states, um, almost 35, 40% of the state is obese. Uh, it's not getting better. This is recent data from last year. Uh, both in kids and adults, we're seeing obesity now as young as two, three years old, which we never have seen before. Uh, severe morbid obesity, BMI is greater than 40, is, are getting worse, and the prevalence is almost 40% according to our last data. Striking data from Lancet, uh, this, is, uh, this is what the future holds. By 2030, if the current rates continue, about half of men and half of women in the United States will be obese. And you can see the cost when we're looking at our healthcare economy and how to influence it and how to make a difference. 66 billion per year, and look at the disease burden. Almost 8 million more cases of diabetes, 7 more million cases of coronary artery disease and stroke, over a half million more cancers. Sadly, we're number one in this area, too. These are the most uh, 10 obese countries. I actually, that was in Prague this summer, as well as Malta and, and Sydney. You can see the rates there. Again, we are leading with about 32% of our country. But it's a worldwide problem. I was in Dubai uh, this summer. 35% of the men and 45% of the women are obese. In China now, in cities, 25% obesity in China and cities never seen before. But more affluence brings more access to technology, bad food, sedentary lifestyles. So we're seeing this is a worldwide problem. In Minnesota, we are not much better. You can see the data there from this year, about 30% of our state is obese. Uh, overweight and obese, 70% of our state. Uh, morbidity, just rough numbers to, to remember. Uh, type 2 diabetes, uh, you can remember about 15 pounds. If you wake in, just about 15 pounds doubles the risk of type 2 diabetes. Arthritis, for every two pound weight increase, the risk of weight increases about 10% on average for two pounds. Just imagine 10 pounds. Pregnancy, we all know the risks there of gestational diabetes, labor and delivery problems. This is striking data. This is from the New England Journal of Medicine, and this is, this is just amazing. So, if you, And this is a very well-designed, this is all-comers, all-cause mortality. If you have a BMI of 30 to 34, you have a 200 to 300% higher mortality rate than normal weight adults. Mortality, not morbidity, death rate. If you have a BMI of 25 to 29, you have a 20 to 40% higher mortality rate. I mean, if I was up here talking about any other disease that had a 200 to 300% higher mortality rate, we'd be running in the streets, right? This is, this is incredible. It's an epidemic. 20 years of life lost in certain age and ethnic groups, as you can imagine, social, economically deprived groups, greater rates of obesity. A study last year from JAMA and cardiology, risk of MI in middle-aged men. If you're overweight, 18%. If you're obese, 42%. If you're morbidly obese, 98 almost a guarantee, almost 100%. Women, you can see the data there, almost the same. On average, about two to three years shorter lifespan. As you all know, sitting time is an independent risk factor. So even if we get activity throughout the day, if we sit 8, 10 hours a day through the rest of the day, there's metabolic risk. And uh, with technology again, television watching, gaming, things like that, um, the increasing amount of sedentary time increases our overall metabolic risk. And we're not much better as healthcare providers. You can see the data there. 
Only about a third of medical students meet the physical activity guidelines. Uh, only about a third of our patients receive counseling and exercise. It should be a vital sign, just like we have heart rate, high blood pressure. It should be. We did a study here, Dr. Sellen and I, and, and found only about a third of our residents here at Mayo. So we're not, not much better. Only a third of our residents and fellows are meeting the physical activity guidelines. Um, interesting, we, we, Tate Shanafelt was involved in the study. You may know Dr. Shanafelt. He's at Stanford now, one of the nation's leaders in physician burnout. And we found that we actually had some burnout questions um, during our study. And uh, the quality of life was higher in those who, got the who met the physical activity guidelines, lower in those who did not. So it affected quality of life. Genetic, again, is there a genetic talk? You know, it's my, it's my genes, uh, my mom, my grandma. Every, well, there is a genetic predisposition, but actually lifestyle modification can mitigate almost all the effects of genetic influence on obesity. And Dean Ornish has done some fascinating studies showing that actually physical activity increases telomerase activity and telomere maintenance capacity and immune system cells. Those are, these, are the, these are the things that contribute to aging. And I joke with uh, Jay Smith and, and Jake a lot that really it's the best regenerative medicine that we have. Mechanical stimulation from activity causes immature stem cells to differentiate into lean tissue rather than fat cells. That is truly regenerative medicine without a solution or, or injection or anything else. Fascinating study from genetics last year. Uh, ancestry databases were analyzed, hundreds of millions of people. And you know all the money and effort we're, we're putting into studying the genome now, right? Which, again, great. How do we influence disease through the genome? Well, this study showed that genes were about well under 7% of a person's lifespan. Previously, it was thought 20 to 30% we can modify. Uh, by these gene genetic targets, but this study showed that about 7%, so it's going to be harder to affect lifespan through gene intervention. Fascinating study, again, from circulation last year. 500,000 people from the UK Biobank, kind of like our Rochester Epidemiology Project, huge database. Individuals at high genetic risk for coronary artery disease and atrial fibrillation, so these were at high genetic risk by markers. Fitness almost half lower risk of heart disease and two-thirds lower risk of atrial fibrillation. Again, what, what medicine, what would you pay for? I can give you this medicine, you'll have two-thirds risk less of, of getting atrial fibrillation. Incredible. And this is a fascinating study, too. This is, again, the Taiwan Biobank. Um, so genetic risk scores for each obesity measure were, were tested and looked at exercise interactions. And you can see the variety of exercise interventions that made a difference. Jogging, walking, ballroom dancing, yoga, mountain climbing, every one of them mitigated the genetic effects of obesity. So even in genetically predisposed individuals, again, exercise mitigates the effects, the bad effects. If you remember any numbers, these are the numbers to remember. So these are the current guidelines on physical activity, 150 to 300 and 75 to 150. Basically, 150 minutes of moderate activity per week. And that's kind of activity you're... You're working, but you can still carry a conversation. That level of perceived exertion, and then 75 minutes of vigorous activity. And those are the numbers that contribute most to benefit public health. I've had the privilege of being involved with both um, guidelines, the physical activity guidelines for adults. These are based on voluminous, over 700 of the best pieces of research that are available 
on exercise and activity. So first developed in 2008, Department of Health and Human Services, we revised them last fall. And, and that's, those are the numbers that, that provide optimal health benefit. 150 more, up to 300. 300 is kind of for, for if you're trying to lose weight or if you've lost weight and trying to maintain weight loss, upwards of 300 minutes. So that's, that's an hour, five days a week. Again, respecting the interval training, a little bit more vigorous activity than a little bit less per week. Uh, strengthening exercise, certainly important, twice per week. Stability and balance exercise. And again, just about any condition we can accommodate. We, we, Dr. DiLuigi yesterday talked about adaptive athletes. No matter what you have, we can find you the ways to get the activity necessary to benefit your health. What's new in the guidelines last fall? Well, sadly, we had to develop guidelines for preschool-age kids, three to five years, which because we're seeing differences in this population now. Uh, we discussed sedentary behavior. We took out the 10 minute. It used to be, oh, you know, try and do things at least 10 minutes. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Any amount of minutes, any amount of seconds, it all adds up. And uh, we found even more evidence of health benefits, including cancer, more cancer protection. And we also tested strategies for activity promotion because, again, we're not doing this, and the world is not doing this. So how do we, there's so many factors, and it's multifactorial. How do we make a difference in this epidemic? Again, sadly, preschool-age kids, we want to encourage active play, um, make that a part of all environments. Sitting behavior increases the risk of all-cause mortality, especially cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular mortality, type 2 diabetes, and specifically colon, endometrial, and lung cancers. So the more sitting time, it's almost a linear graph with those risk factors. Again, any activity counts, doesn't matter. Some of the benefits you get right away. You start, you take a half hour walk today, anxiety reduction, some lipid profile changes and immediate metabolic changes are gonna occur the first time you do it. And again, a fascinating study from British Journal of Sports Medicine, even 10 minutes a week lowers all-cause mortality. So anything is good. These are the benefits of physical activity that, that uh, are just incredible. In yellow, those are, the, those are the new benefits that we found in 2018 as compared to 2008. As you can see there, protection against bladder, endometrial, esophagus, kidney, lung, and stomach cancer, improved cognition, reduced risk of dementia. There's been some great studies here by Ron Peterson and Mayo showing that exercise and activity mitigates the effects of mild cognitive impairment and delays onset of Alzheimer's. Um, lower risk of fall-related injuries. Again, what medicine could, could you get that does that effect? There is none. For youth, again, the benefits are the same. We see them all across the board, especially cognition and depression. We have the highest rate of suicide in our youth population that we've ever had. So this is, again, this is medicine. This is treatment. The short-term benefits, like we said, immediately, you go for a walk today, improve quality of life, reduce anxiety, it's gonna affect your blood pressure, your insulin sensitivity, and make you sleep better. That's, that's immediate. You can see the long-term benefits and also disease management um, of long-term diseases. We like to say activity rather than exercise. Activity is any movement. Exercise may imply going somewhere, wearing spandex, and sweating a lot. <laughs> we, want, we just want people moving, just getting, just getting moving. And this is that classic, uh, classic ratio. That's this, this is where the 150 comes from. The biggest bang for the buck. The horizontal axis there is, is fitness level. So you know, running a marathon, again, that's a high fitness level. But health benefit, you can see the biggest bang for the buck occurs with that initial chunk, that 150 minutes per week of moderate activity. 
fitness level, as, as it increases, there's a, there's a diminishing risk. You'll get more fit, which is great, but the health benefit, the biggest one, comes from that initial, initial minutes. This is a Harvard alumni study that directly correlates about 1,500 to 2,000 kilocals per week. That's that 150 minutes. And you can see the death rate. It goes down, and then after that, it kind of levels off. It's not statistically significant. So for public health, we want to get everybody up to those numbers. Does duration matter we talked about? And you can see the more, the better. So less than 20 minutes of activity per day, highest risk of death. This study was last year. About an hour a day, again, two-thirds less risk of death, two-thirds. 100 minutes per day, 76% less risk of death. High-intensity interval training, we talk about this a lot. Uh, it's not exactly new. It's, it's been around for a while. What it is is doing something as hard as you can, and it does not have to be ballistic, including weights. It's just doing maximal effort, uh, and then a, a, so about 30 seconds of maximal effort, and then one to two minutes of recovery. 30 minutes of maximal effort, one to two minutes of recovery. Do that about four or five cycles, so you're challenging your system more than you could with, with just continuous moderate-intensity exercise. And, you know, it's, you think, well, is this really good? Is this really a, or is this a, you know, kind of a fad again? But when we look at the research, it is really good. And it's really effective in a bunch of different populations, including some you might not think. You think of maybe heart disease. Uh, and that's actually lower all-cause all mortality from stroke and heart disease in, in the heart disease population with high-intensity exercise. Um, it's worked in obese populations. It's worked in t diabetic populations. And because it's, it's more efficient, people do it more. And everybody's busy. Everybody wants the biggest bang for the buck. So uh, it seems like this is a really good uh, tool to use uh, for populations. Uh, we need to be careful because not everything should be done high intensity. And when you add resistance, everything changes. So that's when tissue breakdown occurs. But certainly um, a very viable way to, to incorporate this, this training into our schedule. Just a, a few words on just different things that, you know, tr tr there's a lot of tradition in exercise because we just do stuff because we've al always done it that way. <laughs> but flexibility, you know, if there's a, oh, is it good, is it bad? You know, the studies have shown that static stretching right before a dynamic activity, maybe a little bit of 10% decrement in performance. But in general, what we're trying to do is have optimal range of motion about a joint. If you have optimal range of motion about a joint, then your muscles function effectively. And so symmetry is really key. And so if you've had a hamstring strain and, you know, one side goes straight, but the other side goes now 45, okay. You may not feel that with daily life, but say you run. And, you know, you're running a lot. And five months after you start this program, oh, man, my hamstring's killing me. What would you do different? I didn't do anything different. Well, it was cumulative load over time in an imbalanced system. So symmetry side to side is very important. Genetic differences, not everybody's going to be able to be Cirque du Soleil. But within ourselves, we can be symmetric, and that's one of the most important. Dynamic stretching prior to activity sets the muscle, prepares it for activity. So it's just doing your activity at a very low level before you get into it. Technique is really key. I mean, this, she looks really, oh, this is really dramatic, really good stretch. She's really flexible. But for stretch the hamstring, she's actually, you guys know the protective effects of all those elements in the spine, the facets and everything. So she's unlocking those protective elements. She's putting rotational and torsional stress on the disc. That's a bad stretch. Looks, looks dramatic, but it's not a good stretch. It's not a, it's not, it's not a beneficial stretch and could be at risk. You have to hold stretches at least 30 seconds to get tissue to remodel itself and get longer. 
And you shouldn't bounce. That causes microtrauma and actually makes you tighter. Resistance training, um, just amazing effects. We lose about 10% of our lean muscle mass per decade after age 30. So resistance training replaces that. And a lot of neat studies that show that there's a lot of metabolic effects, things that you wouldn't think of that occur with resistance training. When you train with the resistance, you actually decrease your LDL, your bad cholesterol, you increase insulin sensitivity. Um, and really, things that you think would occur with aerobic training um, actually occur as good or better with resistance training. It affects lipids, lowers LDL, and raises, raises our good cholesterol, the HDL, reduces systolic blood pressure similar to aerobic training, and uh, maybe superior to aerobic training in, in helping insulin sensitivity and some of the things that we see with diabetes. So how many people grew up with the model, you know, multiple sets, you know, two, three, four, six sets and all? Really, you know, evidence-based. Once you fatigue a muscle, the physiologic principle, you fatigue a muscle. Whether you fatigue it two or three or five or six times, I'm saying proper warm-up and everything, but, but one set, 90% of the benefits are from a one-set program. As long as you fatigue the muscle, and a huge, huge amount of studies, again, 33 of the 35 best studies comparing single-set to multi-set training, no difference. They looked at M-mode ultrasonography. Oh, I'm not going to get it. Same, same definition of muscle, same everything. So once you've stimulated that muscle to do and fatigue it to get to do what it needs to do, all the neurotrophic and protein factors, that's what you need to do. And whether you do it 10 times or one time, one time is just as effective almost, just as effective. There may be subtle differences, but will that apply to public health and for most people? And the other thing, what we're doing now, as far as public health is, you know, the, the, the fatigue factor, maybe, maybe you fatigue at rep 27. That's okay, as long as you fatigue the muscle. And rep 27 probably means it's going to be a weight that you can control better, that your mechanics are going to be better, that your form, your technique's going to be better, and less risk of overload injury. So not a bad thing. You say, oh, no, that's not gonna, it does, does the same exact thing for muscle building. So, and many people are intimidated by, they look at periodization tables and all, multiple sets and reps, and they don't do it. They don't, they don't do it at all. And, uh, and heavier is not superior when we look at the data. There's very subtle differences from these very complex programs. Uh, and again, we may have sport-specific programs that require certain demands, but, but again, for 90% of the people out there, the single-set programs are going to be beneficial. So again, it's whether more volume results in greater strength, we don't have that evidence. The, the, the most important thing is fatiguing the muscle. And again, a wide range of repetitions. If you like to do a lighter weight and lift it, as long as you go to fatigue, you're doing what you need to do to change that tissue. So uh, multi-joint exercises, um, again, and I think that maybe we're going to see a, what we're trying to push in public health now is probably greater adherence if people know they don't have to spend an hour and 20 minutes in the weight room. They can spend 20 minutes in the weight room. Maybe they're going to adhere to a program of strength training better. Maybe we're going to reduce injury risk because they're not going to be going for maximal lifts that fatigue them at rep four or six. <laughs> so spondylolysis waiting to happen here. So technique is definitely key. Uh, we have just for your patients, you know, I, I don't know if you guys know about mailclinic.org. It's a, it's a site. You don't have to log in. There's no password. Tons of information even for your patients here. We have a set of strength training videos, 35 using free weight, body weight, machine, tubing, just show you how to do it. Correct. It's great for your patients to just take home, look at, or, you know, peruse it when they're at home. Have a book called Fitness for Everybody also that, that details a lot of these things. 
And stability and balance just is an area that, you know, it, we, uh, we really want to make sure that the tissue, does, you can be aerobically fit but not stable. We want to make sure that the tissue is recovered to the point where it, where it has its proprioception back and, and our stability system is retrained. So pain-free doesn't necessarily mean normal. It just means pain-free. So we have to train that stability back in. That's coordinated contractions of a muscle to stabilize. You can be very strong but not stable. And we did a study here uh, looking at ankles. We kind of simulated an ankle sprain in individuals. We, we uh, put, them, put them, and we looked at how the muscles contracted or about the ankle, and then we put them on an ankle stability program and retested them. Uh, we used medical students, of course, for this. We, we didn't actually sprain the ankle, but we kind of gave them a perturbation and a quick uh, lateral movement simulating an inversion sprain, looked at the muscle contraction patterns, and uh, what we found that after eight weeks of ankle disc training, there was a favorable contraction pattern that stabilized the ankle. We actually made the muscles work better to stabilize together. And so you can see here the, the dark is the experimental group. They actually remodulated the firing pattern of the ankle compared to the control side. We did a similar study with, uh, with people who had ankle sprains. And again, after a sprain, the, the contraction was not together. So the coordinated contraction needed to be retrained. And single leg balance does this. Uh, simple stuff like Tai Chi and movement therapies, that's all you need. Um, but the more you do on one leg, the better you get at one leg, the more we encourage muscles to stabilize together. And you can be, again, very aerobically fit, strong, and not stable. It's a separate system that we need to train. I had a 250-pound linebacker in my office. This guy could bench 550 with a bench behind him. Put him on one leg, you could push him over with a finger. He was very strong, but not stable. And, and we're role models. It's, I love the phrase, 90% caught, 10% taught. We can say all these things, but unless we model them, you know, it's, people are not going to do them. So to our, to our families, to our friends around us, I have a secretary who lost 114 pounds because I do these lectures. And, oh, i got to do this. Now, the interesting thing is everybody in your cubicle is kind of saying, you know, what are you having for lunch there? What are, can I go for a walk with you? And, you know, she's kind of influencing people. Fascinating study last year, uh, about 17,000 women and their children in Denmark. Moms with a healthy BMI, 150 minutes of activity, didn't smoke, drank alcohol in moderation, had children with a 75% reduced obesity rate. So again, what, what can we give, you know, I can, how much would you pay? Well, it's 75% chance your kid's not going to be obese if you take this. Simple stuff, but it works. And it's never too late. This is one of my patients who lost 250 pounds, came in with his pants, and he, he, actually, he actually used a walker for about 30, could only walk for about 30, 60 seconds when I first met him. He's like, oh, it's too late, doc. And he had coronary artery disease, type 2 diabetes, all that sort of stuff. And I said, no, it's not. He said, yes, it is. No, it's not. Back and forth. One of our therapists, one of our masters with, with people, um, got him walking 60 seconds, 90 seconds. This is a year and a half later. Changed his whole life. He's now doing high mountain altitude rescue in, in Europe <laughs> and uh, lost 250 pounds. And he said, he said, Doc, you take a picture of me. He says, because you tell people I didn't join any fancy health club. I didn't do any fad diet. I just, I just ate less and moved. So thank you very much. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.